On this, the first edition of the Vincast Live, my guests are Ben Rankin from Galley Estate and Dan Buckle from Shannon Australia, where we talk about what are the best grape varieties for Australian wine. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to a very special edition of the Vincast with myself, James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, this was the first and hopefully not the last edition of the Vincast Live uh, that was uh, recorded in front of uh, an audience at the amazing Noisy Ritual in Brunswick East on Ligon Street. Uh, where if you weren't already aware, I made my first wine in 2016 vintage. Um, this is, uh, the, the, the live show is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. I really have, um, um, appreciated the help, um, that I've been given by the fantastic podcast network I'm part of now called Earbuds. Uh, and they were able to help uh, facilitate this. And I was joined by um, my co-host for the night, Nevena Sporoska, uh, and two special guests, both former uh, guests of the Vincast, uh, Dan Buckle from Shandon Australia and Circe Wines, uh, and also Ben Rankin from Galley Estates and Willamy Wines uh, in Macedon. Uh, and uh, the first topic uh, that I chose to uh, to discuss uh, in front of an amazing, amazing audience uh, was what are the best grape varieties for Australian wine. Uh, so I do hope you enjoy this edition. Um, it is something that I'd like to organize again. Um, of course, I'd, firstly, <laughs> I want to make sure you guys know uh, how sorry I am that I haven't been able to get out uh, an episode for a while. And it, it has actually been a lot harder to get episodes recorded this year. Uh, as I have been moving house and vintage started and uh, there's lots going on. So um, this was actually recorded late last year, in fact. Um, but uh, I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, live episodes are something that I would like to organize again soon. Please, please do get in contact with me if uh, if you enjoy the show. And if you'd like to be part of a future live recording, uh, make sure to uh, hit up the guests as well. Let them know how much you enjoyed it. And do check out the Earbuds Network. There's lots of other fantastic podcasts on that network. And uh, they are a great support to all of the podcasters that are part of the group. But uh, guys, until uh, until later... I'll see you on the other side. Hello and welcome to the first ever uh, edition of the Vincast Live. Uh, my name is James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, and thank you everyone for being here at the beautiful Noisy Ritual in Brunswick East on a Tuesday evening in early December. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who uh, don't know me, I've worked in the wine industry since 2004 uh, in various capacities. And about four years ago, after a big trip around the world visiting wine regions, uh, I decided that I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I started the Vincast as a way to introduce uh, wine consumers and interested people to different people working in the wine industry. So uh, I've had a lot of amazing winemakers, uh, wine retailers like uh, my good friend Phil at the front here. Uh, 
Um, wine writers, uh, sommeliers, uh, viticulturists, uh, and basically it's an opportunity for people to come and just sort of talk about their background, their influences, which hopefully inform people a little bit about what they do. Uh, because even though you know, there's a lot of great winemakers out there, everyone has a different journey. You know, same thing with sommeliers, retailers, importers. So uh, the idea with the Vincast Live, it's something that I've kind of thought about for quite a while, but uh, it really was only because I'm now part of uh, the Vin- uh, sorry. I'm now part of the Earbuds Podcast Network, uh, which is an amazing new initiative uh, being run here in Melbourne by uh, the gentleman who is monitoring all of the technical side of things, Matt, uh, and my co-host tonight. They are the brains trust behind Earbuds. Uh, so they invited me to be part of that uh, a few months ago. And when they suggested that we potentially look at doing a live version, I absolutely jumped at the opportunity. So firstly, I do want to thank these guys for... Uh, give me that push and uh, more importantly helping me to be able to uh, run the live show because there are a lot of different um, bits and pieces uh, particularly the the, uh, the live stream we are recording tonight so uh, I do appreciate obviously their expertise and assistance in being able to do this uh, the idea with the vincast live is similar to the podcast the the, the, the vincast uh, is a very casual conversation. Generally, it's a fairly free-flowing uh, pathway. Uh, and I like the idea of doing that with the live show, but something I always wanted to do was have slightly more topical conversations. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to invite, uh, as often as possible, former guests of the podcast to come along and talk about a topic to do with wine, again, in a fairly uh, casual um conversational, uh, potentially, you know, we can maybe get a little bit of a, a fun debate going, um, but it, it's an opportunity to hopefully people listen in and come along and uh, see it live, listen to a, a topic uh, about the wine industry. So I really do appreciate you guys coming along to the first one tonight. I, I do hope you enjoy our conversation, uh, and I really do appreciate my uh, my guests, uh, but first I'm going to introduce you to my co-host, uh, Nevena Spirovska. Nev uh, is a, uh, uh, an activist, a political activist particularly, uh, and she also runs, uh, hosts her own podcast called Quickie, which is an amazing podcast. I do highly recommend checking that out. But Nev uh, is a wine enthusiast and uh, I believe as a listener of the Vincast was the person to uh, suggest the Vincast to be part of Earbuds. So obviously I have her to thank uh, for me to be part of uh, Earbuds. But uh, I really wanted to have Nev uh, here with me on stage uh, for the live show uh, and hopefully many more future editions because uh, I thought that she would have a really great perspective uh, on the live show. Nev, thank you very much for, for joining. Thank you so much for having me. So um, Nev... Just what's your sort of background? What's your interest in, in um, I guess, in podcasting and media communications? And then how did you kind of get interested in wine? Podcasting and wine, I mean, the two have so much in common, mostly yourself and the fact that we're all here tonight. I came across podcasting because I realised I had no talent for video 
And so much like the people who don't make it to TV, I went to radio. So the equivalent, it's a slippery slope down and one that I'm very happy to be involved with. Uh, I love podcasting because it gives you the power to have really fantastic conversations, record them and then listen back to them. And that sounds really simple because it is. And that's why I encourage everyone to get involved in podcasting. Beer? Terrible. That's why we're all here tonight. I, like you people, love wine. I've never had a single glass of beer in my life. The only time I came close was when I was in Mackay. I was dehydrated because I got lost for 12 hours and the only thing I could drink was Sing Tao. About 20 meals in, I realized I'd rather dehydrate. So since then, it's been a beautiful relationship with wine and I'd like to give a very special shout out to Chardonnay, my partner, my love, my everything. Thank you, Chardonnay. So, thank you, Nev. My pleasure. Um, so, for tonight, uh, I, we are um, being joined by two former guests of the podcast. Uh, one uh, a while ago, one quite recently. Uh, and based on their uh, willingness to be part of tonight, uh, I think I've picked a, a pretty interesting topic for them to discuss. Uh, so, the first guest uh, was uh, back on episode 67 of the Vincast quite a few recording setups uh, ago. Uh, Dan Buckle, who is a very experienced winemaker uh, working at such illustrious uh, institutions, I guess you would say, as Yering Station and Mount Lee Giran. Uh, he is now the chief winemaker at Shandon in Yarra Valley, uh, which, if, again, if you didn't know already, I was very lucky to spend four years working at. Um, and also he has his own fantastic brand called Circe, so uh, I thought uh, it would be a great opportunity to, to get you on the show. So thank you very much, Dan. Thanks, James. <clears throat> Pleasure to be here. Um, I, I'd just like to do a little shout-out to Pinot Noir while I've got a moment. <laughs> My true love. Um, it's not a competition yet. Okay. Do you know that episode on The Simpsons where uh, Lisa's trying to explain to Homer that all these good things come, all these favourite foods come from a pig? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Homer doesn't believe her that ham and bacon and pork crackled and the a magical chops animal. could all come from the magical animal. And Pinot Noir is a bit like that for me because you can make red wine, of course, and uh, you can make rosé wine and you can make sparkling blanc and rosé. So diversity is there. So that's my true love. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, and the, the second special guest for tonight uh, is a very recent guest of the podcast, was on episode 127, uh, Ben Rankin, who similarly has a lot of experience making wines both in Australia and overseas, uh, has been for a number of years now been running a show at Galley Estate Winery uh, based in Sunbury with also a vineyard in Heathcote, uh, and quite recently with his wife have purchased a vineyard in Macedon, Willamy Wine, uh, Willamy, uh, and they are now leasing their wines from there as well. So, uh, Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, James. Thank you. And I, I um, suppose we may as well continue the conversation. What's your favourite variety? What's your <laughs> or your spirit variety? Oh well, I'd probably go with uh, um, Sangiovese or Nebbiolo, simply because of the tannins. You know, um, I, um, I'm quite rustic and. Uh, 
uh, have a bit of hair in the chest and you need to have you know a little bit of that with the tannins of those two varieties. Um, but I was going to say to Nev, if you ever do uh, um, drink, well, the most likely time you drink beer, yeah. <laughs> to oh, drink no. beer, is that uh, if you become a winemaker or work in a winery, they say, what is it, nine, nine parts cleaning hygiene and ten parts drinking beer. So That sounds like a terrible job. <laughs> Well, I thought they, what they were saying that um, like there's a lot of great wine made because of good beer. Yeah, exactly. uh, I remember um, back in my Chandon days when uh, the, the, the wholesale, the, the sales team would come out to the winery. Sometimes with uh, trade guests, they'd kind of try and you know, get one of the winemakers aside and go, hey, can we try some of the beer you guys made? And I was like, no, no, no you can't talk about that. We're not supposed to be promoting that. We're here to taste wine. Come on. So... The topic of, dis- of discussion for tonight, uh, I thought it was, uh, it's a very uh, important discussion, I guess, at the moment with the, the changing face of viticulture in Australia, uh, relates to grape varieties. Uh, so obviously there are, people would know that there are many, many hundreds, if not thousands of different grape varieties. Uh, and even even within uh, that, there are different clones. But the the grape variety story in Australia is something that's rapidly changing recently. But it is a kind of long story, uh, going back to uh, probably the most important viticultural introduction was uh, James Busby, I think, in 1833, something like 31. that. 31. 31. Yeah. Um, and he brought a lot of uh, uh, grape varieties from... Uh, France, I believe, predominantly France. Uh, so particularly in New South Wales, in the Hunter Valley, they talk about Busby clones. Uh, that was kind of the first major introduction of grape varieties. Um, so a lot of Australia's viticultural history is based around predominantly French varieties. Uh, and subsequently, I think most people would be familiar with grape varieties like Chardonnay, uh, yes. like Shiraz, Cabernet, uh, Pinot Noir is probably has rose to prominence more recently in the last sort of thirty odd years. But James Busby did bring Pinot Noir as absolutely, well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but things have changed a lot more recently, and that's partly because I think um, there's a lot more understanding about grape varieties, particularly outside of France. Um, Ampelographers, who are basically sort of grapevine experts. Um, through often the use of DNA uh, technology, have been able to identify different grape varieties. Uh, and then through work as far as clonal selection and, and choosing the right clones, have been able to start introducing uh, a lot of non-classical French varieties. So generally we refer to those as alternative varieties. Predominantly these are varieties that originate from Italy, Spain, a little bit from Portugal, even some of the sort of more fringe regions in France. Um, We're starting to see some varieties from Greece and Georgia. So uh, the topic, I guess, for tonight is to talk about what are, for lack of a better term, what are the right grape varieties for Australian wine? So, I guess to start off with, um, talking about the kind of, the the fact that there are varieties that have been in Australia for uh, a lot longer than than some others, do you guys think that because they've been here for longer and we have more experience working with those vines and making wine from those vines, 
uh, and also because the vine's potentially older. Obviously, you know, Australia famously has some of the oldest vines in the world of, you know, stuff like Shiraz and Grenache. Uh, do you think that that intrinsically makes, potentially that make, can make better wines from those, those vines, those varieties? I used to think I had an answer to that. And like so many things with wine, the more I learn and the more time goes by, the more I realise I don't really know. And if the climate were static, I think we could answer that more clearly, but it's not. So we're in a time of massive change and that's, that's a big, big challenge. So. So, you, so there you're making a distinction between climate and weather, like vintage to vintage as opposed to like climate change over a long period of time. Well, climate change over a short period of time is evident too. So in my 25 years of winemaking, we've seen harvest dates moving forward around 25 days on right. average. So it's real. And it means, it, you know, in, it just recently I was thinking about planting a vineyard and I had to sort of have a think about that because would I go and spend a lot of money and plant a vineyard in a place that's not going to have the same climate in 10 years' time as it does today and how do you anticipate that's a massive question for us i remember back in my shandon days um the topic of uh, of climate change would come up with you know the the, the obviously the, the person who helped establish shandon australia dr tony jordan uh and something that he would talk about was well yeah climate change is happening and of course there are probably going to be a lot of parts of australia which won't be viable for uh growing wine grapes but at the same time, there are a lot of other regions that historically haven't been viable for, uh, you know, viticulture because you just no varieties could ripen enough to actually produce wine from them. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, it's so true. But, um, you know, there's obviously so many places. I mean, Australia is a very new world, uh, you know, nation of, I mean, even though we've had grapes for 150, 170 years. Um, but it's only on a very small scale, and we're still on a very small scale on, on a global perspective um, from what we produce in this country from an area, hectares of, of vineyard. And um, no doubt there's many other places to explore in Australia, but the key is um, water. Um, that's one of our biggest uh, issues in Australia, um, whether you have access to water um, or not, and then quality of water as well, because we all know that the, the guys down the bottom end of the Murray um, and tap into it being the Barossa and so forth, are, are struggling with salinity because of the high salt content in the Murray that, yeah. they, that they source their water from. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I think that's another part of it as well. Um, but as Dan said, there's, there's multi-facets to it and there's no clear-cut answer to this. Um, but look, I've just bought a vineyard in the last four years in the Macedon Ranges and the reason I, I, we did that was because... Um, you know, it was a sparkling base region. It struggled to get wines ripe enough for table wine, and that's Pinot and Chardonnay, and they're quite early ripening varieties. But now, uh, 20 years later, from the 90s to 2015 or whatever, we're ripening Chardonnay and Pinot very easily, and now you can ripen you know, Shiraz and Cabernet and so forth. Mm. So, um, you know, if I, I've just put my feet in the ground, and I certainly wouldn't want to do it in somewhere further down the hill where it's a lot warmer and hotter and drier. Um, yeah. So you can go up the hill or you can go further south. Yeah. And there's only so much south you can do. Uh, even in Tasmania, mm. they're ripening Shiraz now. So <coughs> up the hill, we're limited to a certain extent because our hills aren't very high. <laughs> and 
So, yeah. And it's bush yeah. <laughs> or forest. Yeah. But it's all a big pioneering effort. And when you think about the, the great vineyards of Europe, they had a thousand years of evolution to do, uh, uh, let that unfold and for the great sites to emerge. So, mm. um, you know, Burgundy is a great example because some of the great vineyards in Burgundy would have emerged over generations as being great because they consistently made amazing wines with strong personality and we don't have that time mm. and we don't have that static environment either. So, Nev, as a, um, a lover of, for example, Chardonnay, uh, do you pick a Chardonnay based on where it comes from, where it's grown? Like, do you, have you kind of identified regions you prefer and are you kind of familiar with them enough to know, well, this is a slightly cooler climate region, that's why it's possibly better for Chardonnay or at least the style of Chardonnay that I like? I've had huge problems recently. I favour probably what is considered the best type of Chardonnay, which is the nutty, robust, buttery, delicious Chardonnay. And I was very shocked to learn when I went into a bottle shop recently that that had gone out of style. Uh, I felt that that was an insult to me, to the grape, to just to wine drinkers <laughs> and to everyone in this room and listening to this podcast today. So I had to be reduced to doing my own Googling uh, which is something I've taken for granted, you know, people in the bottle shop giving you advice, giving you good wines to go to. But I believe if I go down the Mornington end or to the McLaren Valley, I'm bound to find something that suits my tastes. Okay. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I'm, in a general sense, absolutely. Like <laughs> I, I, one, one of the things, like for example, Dan works in the Yarra Valley, uh, the way that... Yarra Valley Chardonnay has evolved in the last 10 or 15 years, has taken it in a different direction, whereas to a, to a certain extent, Mornington, uh, their style of Chardonnay is still a little bit more in that slightly richer, creamier, you know, in some cases, like maybe, yeah, Peringa well, State, maybe, maybe make certainly a slightly from the winemaker more so than, than ever before. Um, you know, with Chardonnay, I think that was... We were quite lazy in, in the 80s and 90s and they were all big and buttery and, you know, so forth. And now there's more, uh, more risk, I suppose, but educated risk um, in, in using wild ferments and also obviously lots of gross leaves to build a bit more texture and, and, and flintiness in, in, or sulphides in, in the wines. Um, that's obviously style-driven, but the winemaker can direct that. Um, but I think the pendulum is swinging back to where you're coming from, Nev, because... You know, I think 10, 15 years ago, or in the early 2000s, where it went into this austere, Chablis-esque sort of style, and certainly the, the pendulum swung back because you look at those wines uh, seven, eight years down the track, and they're still undrinkable, mm. um, which says a lot. Uh, so it's great that the pendulum has swung back to a more, um, as you say, a buttery style, but it's not as full-on buttery and mellowed as what it was in the in the 90s. So, and I think that's great for Australian Chardonnay. In particular. On, on that topic, I think it, it, it's interesting you talk about style there. Do you guys think that variety is still more important than style or are people potentially thinking more about what style of wine that they like uh, and choosing it based on that? So, like, for example, they might be talking to a sommelier or someone in a wine shop uh, and say, I like sort of rich, buttery, oaky styles of Chardonnay rather than, like, it's not necessarily the Chardonnay, it's the style of wine that they're after. I think they go hand in hand, don't they? <laughs> um, I don't know, how do you reckon, Dan? I, I, 
I think for the majority of consumers, they buy on grape variety first and then region second. And after that, the, each individual producer would have their own take on style. So you need to get to know your producers. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not getting the right advice from your friendly neighbourhood bottle shop... Or if they're even insulting you, you probably should go somewhere else. Yeah, you, honestly, you should never... Be, but this is one thing that I always am at great lengths to, to point out. You should never feel ashamed about, about a style of wine you like or a variety. None of my actions. You know, I, I know that, like, it's, it's now getting to a point where it's deeply unfashionable to say that you're like Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, for example. It's like... Oh, no, that's because it's terrible. But, 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 but someone might enjoy it, you know. One person's trash and, you know, all that sort of oh, stuff. That's the beauty about wine, you know. It's so subjective and, and that's the reason why, you know, if you, if you don't like that style of Chardonnay, try the next style and the next producer and the next one. There's a million producers of the one variety, let alone all the other varieties. And then that would be slightly changed with the next vintage because of the variation of the vintage. Sure. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's so I, exciting. I have to admit I'm guilty of writing that pendulum. I, I came through the... The 90s, making oaky, buttery Chardonnay, and then tried to do something else in the noughties, and they're called noughties for a reason, right? <laughs> and I made a few wines that everyone went, ooh, don't like that. And um, so I've sort of come back to somewhere in the middle ground now. But um, you end up having to make sure you feel that the wine's delicious and yummy. And that's, if you can't put your hand on your heart and say, I really like this, I just want to drink it. If you don't buy it, I'll just drink it all, then um, I don't think you're being true to yourself. <laughs> So if you, if you guys uh, firmly believe that people are primarily or predominantly are making their wine choices based on variety, do you think that they, people are embracing some of the, the unfamiliar, the newer varieties that are being introduced into Australia? Or are they, by and large, are they still kind of staying in, in something they're comfortable with or familiar with? Uh, look, statistically, they're staying in the comfortable zone for sure. Um, you know, Shiraz and, and Chardonnay and, and Cabernet to a lesser degree and, and obviously Sauvignon Blanc are, are the four mainstayers. Um, uh, you know, we all love Pinot Noir and we, we'll talk about it, but it's only, you know, I think it's 2 to 5% of the market is Pinot Noir. So um, uh, let alone Sangiovese or, or you know, Nero d'Avola or all these other alternate varieties. Um, but certainly they're, they're, they're the mainstayers. But interestingly, though, with respect to our local market here in Melbourne, um, you know, Melbourne is one of the most multicultural cities in the world, and as we know, there's you know there's more Italian, uh, sorry, um, Greeks living here than in than in Athens or whatever it is. Um, but you know, it's such a multicultural city, and you've got five major wine regions within a one-hour drive of Melbourne, and we're all influenced by Melbourne. Um, that you know, the, the obviously what the Italians have done in bringing out, uh, you know, they they make wine in their own backyard. They will um, obviously have brought back into Australia, you know, Sangiovese and so forth. And so those varieties are now becoming more common and more popular, but they're still a very small uh, percentage of the, the greater wine-drinking public in Australia. But would, it's exciting to see that because of multiculturalism is changing. Would, would you agree to a certain extent that uh, in spite of that, I guess, <clears throat> in terms of the attention of wine media, uh, wine trade, sommeliers, buyers, that kind of thing, and kind of people who consider themselves to be mover, shaker, influencer-type wine consumers, then a lot more noise is being made about some of those 
varieties that represent a much smaller part of the, the, the global Australian wine sort of industry? Undoubtedly, the novel varieties and weird and wonderful wines that are being produced get a lot of airtime uh, in terms of media and in terms of sommeliers and trade. Um, so that's great because they create a discussion and they, they're provocative, you know. Uh, so yeah, Noisy Ritual is a great it. example. There's some really interesting mm. stuff across the counter there. Pet Nat is... Um, mm booming in Australia in a small way, but it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, wine writers and, and, and so forth want to have, you know, um, a bit of bang for their buck. So, you know, they'd like to talk about a, you know, um, unusual grape variety or unusual style of wine, whether it's a skin contact or what have you, um, because there's a million other wines out there that are commercially made and it's been boring, it's been done for the last, you know, 50 years. So we get that and... Um, and it's great. And then diversity on wine lists and in wine shops also drives that because everyone, you know, sommelier wants to have uh, a local Sangiovese or Alianico or what have you, plus obviously the other um, French varieties. But um, so there's certainly a demand from that point of view as well. Nev, do you consider yourself to be a somewhat adventurous wine consumer? Do you like being introduced Not to different things? just a wine things? consumer. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I, Time I think and a place, come on. <laughs> from a time when it was red and white. And I'm speaking more from the layperson's uh, wine-buying perspective. When your closest bottle O was maybe a Liquor Land or a BWS or a Thirsty Camel, um, and you're really just scraping the bottle of the wine barrel when you're there. But now we have all these fantastic new shops that are opening up to these varieties that you can just get. It's like the democratisation of wine that these beautiful things that we've never been able to try before are in a price range where we can say, I will take a punt on that. The only thing I won't take a punt on, my dad is a terrible winemaker. He, um, Macedonian background, Macedonians aren't known for their wine, they're more grapper people. He's been doing the everything in the kitchen sink approach to wine. So it's uh, Shiraz, Merlot, Ganache, sparkling red and he's got 300 bottles in Macedonia so I'm giving them away all tonight if anyone wants one. It's putrid. So I thank the winemakers here today for making palatable beautiful wines. Do, do you choose a, a, a wine shop or a wine bar based on the fact that you are able to be introduced to different things, things you might not be familiar with? Absolutely. I think you, you reach a certain age, and I think that's about 23 these days, when you go, enough is enough. You know, I really need to step up. I need to get above the bottom shelf, and I need to be supporting local stores that do encourage uh, new, exciting wines, like your Black Hearts and Sparrows, who have been doing a very good shop in the kind of the gentrification of inner Melbourne, just really inserting themselves in. Uh, there are others who... I won't mention tonight because they're in my bad books, but I, I love it. I love what's happening. I think what's really interesting talking democratisation is the um, consumer reviews uh, is a new sort of place in the internet that's growing and that's, that's really cool because it gives everybody a voice and, and that collectively can add another voice to the whole wine conversation because there's really only a handful or maybe a dozen wine writers or legitimate critics in Australia, but uh, everyone's got an opinion and that's kind of interesting. Mm. So on the topic of wine styles and I guess popular or um, very 
rapidly growing styles of wine, I think we might actually uh, look at a couple of the first two wines for tonight. So um, I'm sure everyone here. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Uh, I'm sure everyone here would be a fan of sparkling wine. Um, sparkling wine, Australia is actually, certainly per capita, is one of the biggest consumers of sparkling wine. I think it's it's in the top ten champagne markets in the world. Currently eighth yeah. by volume, which is really something for 24 million people. Yeah. We drink a lot of bubbles, um, and I think my mum is sort of one of the biggest consumers of bubbles. Um so that was part of the reason, like the, the growth of sparkling wine, both in Australia and globally, that um, Maud Chandon back in 1985, six, six yeah. uh, established uh, Chandon in the Yarra Valley. Um, and the, the, the growth of sparkling wine just hasn't slowed down at all. Um, so the the Chandon story obviously Dan can talk in uh, much um, much more detailed terms uh, is more in terms of uh, particularly Champagne uh, the Champagne varieties being uh, Chardonnay Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier um, and the method that they use in Champagne um, which we can't call method Champenoise can we No it can't be anything Champenoise so traditional <laughs> method me- method traditionnel yeah but it's the same Almost exactly. Can we say sparkling was? Sparkling was, yeah, sure. Sparkling was, yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're desperately looking for new words. So I'll, just, I'll, just, I mean, just say it in a sort of a Frenchy way. Sparkling was, yeah. Um, so the, I guess the, the that method, and certainly Champagne is one of the biggest players in the world for sparkling wine, um, and that has been a really important part of the Australian sparkling wine story. But there is a kind of a new challenger to um, the, you know, the, the Pinot Noir Chardonnay method traditionnel styles of wine, and that is a, a style of wine that has come out of Italy, which you probably would be familiar with. It's Prosecco. Um, Prosecco is going wild these days. Prosecco, Prosecco is somewhat of a controversial topic. Champagne... They got it right and they said, no, you can't call it champagne. It's the geographic area. It's now protected, so we can't call it champagne or method champenoise. Prosecco is complicated because Prosecco is actually a place in Italy, but it's also what they call the variety. They now have the borders around the town of Prosecco, so they argue that we can't call it Prosecco, and that's where... The King Valley producers will have to call it sparkling glera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, the Prosecco, the first wine which should be on your left, is from Dalzotto. It is uh, Pacino uh, 2017 Prosecco. On, on, on the one on your left, the second wine is coming out shortly. Uh, so Dalzotto were sort of the pioneers of Prosecco in Australia. Uh, I think the family uh, originally are from, uh, I believe, Valdebiadene in Veneto, which is the heart of Prosecco in Italy. And they have done an amazing job in terms of um, getting Prosecco into the glasses of Australian consumers and been one of the important parts of the growth of Prosecco in Australia. Um, 
Of course, at the same time, there's lots of uh, Italian Prosecco you can buy. There's a lot of uh, other great producers, particularly, as Dan mentioned, in the King Valley, uh, like Pizzini, like Brown Brothers. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to sort of look at Prosecco because it is a, a wine that has been absolutely exploding. Um, obviously not literally, because, you know, they would ruin the wine. Some of them explode too. Yeah, but... some of them do. Yeah. Uh, so... Have what a taste makes it of so the... effervescent? Like it's so bubbly, obviously, but yeah. comparatively to champagne. Dan, do you want to um, talk about the, the different methods? A the different method. Of... This one would have been um, fermented to be a base wine, like like a Riesling, and then undergone a second fermentation in a in a pressure tank to create the bubble. So it's a it's a natural bubble that comes from a yeast fermentation, but Unlike the traditional method, it, um, it's a fairly short process and the wine doesn't get a lot of contact time with its yeast in that second fermentation. So the, the magic of traditional method and the, what the Champenoise savoir-faire brings to the whole sparkling game is that these, the yeast contact with the wine changes the texture and, and the way the bubbles move. So... Um, with the Prosecco like this, it's really effervescent and really quite foamy in your mouth, yeah. which is pleasant and refreshing, uh, but it's a style thing, yeah. It's a very uh, short tail. It's like it's over before it even began. I think, I think that's, to a certain extent, is part of the appeal, is yeah, that it's exactly. like there's yeah. people can much, much easier taste the, uh, the, the fruit flavors there like probably the most obvious fruit character for prosecco is apple green apple um and it's that as dan probably just touched on the thing about method traditionnel and champagne is that there are more complex characters there that uh are not necessarily a part of the prosecco story so there's a place for both absolutely uh so complexity is something that I spend most of my winemaking life striving towards and then I see these Proseccos sneaking up on me and they're all about good times, you know, and this cheerfulness in the glass and this sort of frivolity. Has, has anyone had a spritz before? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 they're very, yeah, as my, um, my gorgeous partner at the back was just saying, when my parents come over, the, uh, the spritzes come out. Um, but but again, that that the, the bar scene, particularly in Melbourne, has been taken over by spritzes, and prosecco is an important part of that. Um, Aperol, you know, commonly is, is the other important part of it. Um, the second wine that you've got in, in in your right glass is definitely not something that you'd be wanting to mix with something like Aperol. It is designed to be enjoyed on its own. So this is a Chandon wine. Uh, I'll actually get uh, Dan to talk a little bit about uh, this wine because it's a new one for me. It's a, a limited edition. It's a Pinot Meunier Rosé, so we call it Signet. Uh, if you go to Champagne and talk to my colleagues at Moet, they'll ask them about great varieties and they'll tell you that Pinot Meunier is the, the ugly sister to Pinot Noir and it's a, a lesser variety and it's not very... Good and in fact, recently they've changed the name just to Meunier to even sort of stop associating it with the, the lofty princess Pinot Noir. And so, when we take that into the Australian context and we sort of uh, 
start to taste the wines blind and stop being prejudiced or listening to the Champenoise too much and then realise that the Meunier, Pinot Meunier wines we make are really delicious and charming and yummy. And so yeah. uh, we decided to do a, a special bottling of this one because it was just so nice to drink. And we call it Signet because it's the ugly duckling story and we wanted to give it a cool name and that was about as cool as we get at Chandon. But <laughs> yeah, enjoy. <laughs> So being that these two wines are quite different in style and, and appeal in different ways, can you guys sort of see how these two, even though they're both sparkling wines, are in the same kind of family, they're quite different styles and they would have different applications? Do you guys, do you guys sort of have a preference? or yes. would, <laughs> Or would you be able to uh, enjoy them um, equally in different contexts? Very good. Summer days. Yep. Yep. And the and the rosé. Nice. What would you pair this with? It's so peculiar. What couldn't you pair this with? Yeah. Asian food. Go out for some Chinese duck and a bottle of that and life's good. What's the smell attributed to? It's got a lovely little pong to it. Aromatically, that smell comes from the fruit, obviously, but it's, I, I'd sort of see it in a cherry, strawberry kind of spectrum. Uh, that's pretty classic for the Meunier aroma, but it's got a sort of warmth about it. it for me, it's like ripe cherries in the sun kind of aromatic. Does it have a long-on long um, contact with yeast? Yeah, so that's had... Um, three years on yeast lease. So. so if you're familiar with Chandon, probably the, the main vintage one is the Vintage Brut. How long does the Vintage Brut spend on lease? About, uh, 30? about 36 to 42 yeah. months. So, yeah, three and a half years or so. Awesome. So, again, on the topic of style, um, there are, can, obviously with new varieties being introduced. There are also new styles of wine. Something we touched upon previously is, uh, you know, for example, skin contact, white wine, very colloquially known as orange wine. Um, have you guys had enough kind of experience with these kind of wines to sort of have formed an opinion about whether or not there are varieties better suited to that style of wine? Uh, look, yeah, I, I play around with it a little bit on the side at Galley. Um, and I've, I've tried it with uh, um, Chardonnay and also uh, Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris. Um, uh, I also do a bit of skin contact for a year with Shiraz as well, but that's another conversation. But with the white wines, which is probably more what we're talking about from a phenolic point of view... Um, I think the Pinot Gris, Pinot Grigio is a, is a great variety akin to uh, skin contact because, put simply, there's some really boring, horrible Gris Grigios out there that are Sab Blanc-like, dare I say it, in the sense that they're very one-dimensional. Yeah. yeah, and they're sort of one-dimensional um, and they're bottled you know, a month or two after harvest and bang onto the market. They're like rosé as a cash flow for your business. But... Um, 
with uh, skin contact and adding that sort of phenolic weight to uh, Pinot Gris in particular, um, and particular when we've got two different clones and the clones are entirely different clones. Um, one's quite a, um, a deep, dark, sort of Pinot Noir-like um, a bunch, so it's a, a grey um, and quite tight, early wound bunch, and another clone which is um, uh, quite sparse, open, a lot bigger bunched, berries are bigger and it's more of an orange colour rather than a grey colour. Um, so you can just quickly tell by, just by just descriptions of those two clones of the one variety that they're going to have different uh, skin contact um, will work differently for the, in the wine. Yeah. Um, and, and it does quite significantly. And there's different ways you can do skin contact and that's another conversation again in, in how you um, best represent those phenolics or what you're trying to achieve with skin contact because everyone has a different philosophy as well. Um, in our particular situation, um, I do it whole bunch, so hand-picked, no destemming or crushing. It's just um, like a red wine. We throw 100% whole bunch cab mac or cab, cab maceration into a, a red fermenter and we only leave it there for four to five days. Uh, so ferment starts and then we um, uh, press it straight to barrel and it finishes its life in barrel for... Um, for 12 months on gross lees. Um, and then we peel that back um, with another batch which is more commercially made but in barrel on gross lees for the same amount of time and it will, could be about 20, sorry, um, 40 to 50% of the blend for skin contact. So we'd like to try and peel it back because I don't want to have it too too feral or too in your face. Yeah. But other producers are going you know, quite extreme. Um, everyone oh, has a different philosophy. With, with, wine, with wines, particularly in that kind of realm that they're bar pushed to the extreme, do you think people are, as far as consumers, Nev, perhaps you could ask this, answer this, do you think people are picking it based on the style or does, does, does the variety play into it? Are people picking a, an orange wine made from Chardonnay over uh, a Gewürztraminer, for example, or is it because it is an orange wine? I think much like the Spotify playlist, people are getting a lot more tuned with their feelings and with moods. So now it's like piano classics while you're studying or music for the rain. And in much the same way, that's influencing their wine choices. So they're making and taking those bigger risks and choosing the style. I've got a contrary opinion. I, I, Go ahead. I tend to think do. that if this was a great idea, people would have been doing it all along. Um, so eight and a half thousand... Well, there is a reason that we stopped doing it. Yeah. So eight and a half thousand years of winemaking history um, <laughs> with a pretty solid focus on making the most delicious booze you can uh, has got, it, got us to where we are. So it's really hard to do innovation with that length of historical background. So people mm. are trying new things, and that's great. That's good fun. But I'm not sure they're nailing it for delicious every time. Uh, okay. But I think, though, that's where the variety comes into play because you wouldn't do that with Chardonnay. And, and we've tried it with Chardonnay, and it just, it's a horrible, you know, two barrels of skin contact Chardonnay is a piece of SHIT. And, and never do it again. Um, and I've done it three Facebook. or four times. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, as I said, with Gris, we, we do it because it adds a bit more texture and a bit more interest to the wine. Otherwise, um, after 8,000 years of winemaking of Pinot Gris, it's still boring. <laughs> so, on that topic, on that topic, <laughs> being, that, being that we are in the new world and even though there are thousands of years of viticultural understanding in the European context with varieties that have been 
uh, over many, many, many years, uh, perfectly chosen, attuned to their environment. In Australia, who's to say that we can't use a potentially, you might argue, an outdated winemaking or viticultural technique because it is a new opportunity? Do you think that new or alternative varieties are an opportunity to experiment and to try different things and to say, why can't we do this? Well, there's an element of that, um, uh, for sure. And, and, you know, mind you, in Australia, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use Sangiovese as a reference, if I may, James, but um, I think in Australia with Sangiovese, it was made by a lot of Shiraz winemakers and it was made like Shiraz, so it wasn't respected as, as its own variety. Um, and really, um, get, not going into clones, but clones certainly changed it in the um, late 90s, early 2000s. But um, Sangiovese was a really boring grape variety because it was made like Shiraz. And then about 15, 20 years ago, people started to make it like Sangiovese, and us winemakers travelled to uh, Chiani and Tuscany and and found out what they were doing there and then started implementing those sort of uh, finer details into making Sangiovese. Um, and so it took a long time to finally make some great Sang in this country. And we're still learning and there's still a long way to go, but we're getting there and, the, and the, we're going in the right direction. So it's really exciting. Um, so you've got to play around with these new varieties and you've got to let winemakers experiment. And whatever variety it is, they're going to use um, techniques that you know, we're around a thousand years ago or whatever it is from other regions or where they traditionally come from to find out if it works or not. Um, they might love it and they, and they think it works, but then the consumer doesn't. So you also got to find that out as well. Um, and that's another conversation. But um, we, are, we are moving in the right direction. So it's pretty exciting in that regard. Um, and, you know, with climate change, uh, obviously in these warmer regions, these particularly southern Italian or southern Mediterranean uh, varieties um, are really akin to our warm, hot um, climate. So we're also adjusting to that at the same time as these other techniques in what we're doing. You've got to say that varieties that grow well on hot, rocky slopes on the Mediterranean got to do well in Australia, certainly context. So I tend but, to agree. But do you think, um, as Ben talked about, the fact that there are, uh, you know, more recent generations of winemakers who potentially did study at universities like Charles Sturt and Adelaide University, went and did vintages over in Europe and in more Mediterranean uh, regions, got that experience to come back and say, oh, maybe we should rethink how we're working with some of these newer varieties in Australia. Uh, do you think that's been a really important factor in how the quality of these varieties have improved? I think that's a natural evolution of how things should go. I, I don't see much of it in the Yarra Valley, but I think my observation is people who work with grapes and wine tend to be fairly experimental and want to have fun. And who's going to turn down a trip to Sicily to see how that all works, you know? So I think that is the future to a certain extent. And, yeah, I think um, that's the only way to sort of get to know the variety's character, personality, what's its charms, and then... So I had to bring that to Australia and see how it works. There's a big element of learning from your mistakes as a winemaker. So you need to make mistakes to make a better wine. Yeah. Um, on our journey of, of 20 plus years each, you know, we've all made lots of mistakes and, and you learn from those ones and you tweak it in another direction and, and, and adjust accordingly. 
So with new varieties, there's going to be more mistakes because they're new, obviously. And, and if you haven't gone and worked in Greece and, and don't know anything about Arcatatelli, and then, sorry, um, uh, Ocetico, thank you, um, and then trying to make it here in Australia, well, you're going to be making you know, lots of mistakes to, to learn what to do right or wrong in the mm. future. So there's always that element as well. Two questions. Where does the natural wine phenomena fit in this? And are you going to finish your Prosecco? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a one-hour drive, so all yours. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, on that topic, guys, uh, before, before Ben answers that question, uh, if you don't want to finish the wines in your glasses, um, please, there are some Just spittoons. bring it to me. It's fine. Just take it to the top. We're, we're, we're about to um, Getting driven home. get the next cool. two wines poured. No, no. Natural wines is a good comment, good conversation, but um, whether you like it or not, it's here to stay, and it's a really um, relevant and an important part of the diversity of wine in Australia. Um, and but as Dan mentioned before, if it's a good wine, it's a good wine. Um, pretty simple. And there's some awesome natural wines out there, and there's some horrible ones. But there's also it's really bad, some really, really bad really commercial awesome. wines really, really as well, bad, and really yeah. good commercial ones too. So. You have to find that out, but you know um, it's great that we're actually exploring all those natural wines, and they're available to you guys. Uh, um, you know, in all these great shops in inner suburbs of Melbourne and so forth. You won't you won't find them at Dan Murphy's, but but we have a question. Look, yeah. And in two years, we're going to be really embarrassed seeing ourselves in those photos. Mm, mm, mm. I understand what you're saying. I, I, I do agree. Yeah. Oh, for me... Can I, can I just, just oh, yeah. quickly, I, I do want to say, I didn't prompt her to make that comment. <laughs> she, that's, coming, that's coming from her. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think... Um, uh, um, you know, the whole thing with natural wines, and for me, my little bugbear with it, is that there's very little conversation about where the fruit comes from. You know, is it an organic or biodynamic vineyard in the very first place? Um, and, and if it isn't, well, then can you really call it a natural or whatever wine you want to call it? Um, so from our perspective as, as being in the industry, we, we need to be very aware of being authentic and actually telling the truth in, in what we're selling. Um, and likewise, but there's there's good winemakers and bad winemakers. <laughs> I think um, that it comes down to delicious, doesn't it? If the wines are yummy, then that's awesome. Um, I think if you take the high moral ground, you've got to be a bit careful. Uh, because we've all got a carbon footprint and we all, you know, use plastic from time to time and I've got leather on my shoes too. So it, this is, I talked to my French colleagues about this the other day and they say it's just one tree in a big forest of your, your, your ethical life on planet Earth. Whether your grapes are fermented with the yeast that came on them or the yeast that came from a packet, which is fairly natural in itself, you know. And if anyone's had a glass of soft drink or processed food in the last little month you know the whole holier than thou thing collapses quite quickly so um, yeah. Yeah. I think the natural wine thing is here 
the challenge for those guys is to make it delicious too. And because yeah. it's hard to buy a second glass at fifteen bucks if it's not yummy. Yeah. Yeah. I I I, I have to say, I knew I, I probably should have suspected this would happen. The first live edition of the podcast, we're already talking about natural wine. <laughs> <laughs> it's so Melbourne. Um, what I want to talk about now, I guess, coming back to uh, style, um, uh, Max Allen, when he was on the podcast, and I've seen him talk about this in a number of different um, uh, contexts, uh, has talked about the style for light-bodied red wine. Um, and I think probably sort of people don't think about the fact that, that what led that was varietal. Uh, and that was Pinot Noir. Uh, people were introduced to lighter red wine uh, and an alternative to really full-bodied, uh, tannic, in a lot of cases, oaky uh, wines like Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon uh, to this light, lighter on its feet, um, prettier style of red wine. And people were allowed to say that they enjoyed lighter red wines, even though Pinot Noir is a, a very complex uh, generally produces a very complex red wine. Still not allowed to say that in South Australia, by the way. <laughs> and they stop you at the gate coming off the plane to check your bags for Pinot Noir. <laughs> so um, li- light red wines, obviously there are a lot of examples in Europe, but th- that's another style of wine that has increased in popularity in Australia. And I do feel that some part of that has been led by uh, alternative varieties, um, I think Sangiovese is yep. is a really you know um, a prominent variety producing that style of wine, but um, the two wines we've got uh, for you to taste now uh, have been made by the two guests tonight. So the first one uh, on the left is uh, a Circe Pinot Noir, which Dan made and we'll talk about, and the second one is uh, from Galley Estate, the Adelaide. Uh, Nebbiolo 2013, which Ben made. So these these two varieties, uh, you possibly could objectively say, uh, make the greatest wines in their respective countries in terms of Burgundy in France, red Burgundy at least, uh, is made from Pinot Noir, and Barolo Barbaresco is made from Nebbiolo in Italy. And they have... Uh, really um, been making a lot of attention in Australia as well for making slightly lighter but certainly complex um, structured red wine. So just guys talk about your wine respectively and then we'll talk about that topic. So I've, I've spent the last 20 odd years of my winemaking life making wines a little bit more delicate <laughs> and I've had to times battle with consumers who want big red wine and want to um, and that's really tiresome and boring. But with Circe, when we started this little project, we decided we were going to make the wines we wanted to drink. And there were, we wanted to make Mornington Peninsula Pinot that was delicate and aromatic and pretty and light and felt really quite supple and... Delicious. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so these wines are made with absolute disregard for power and weight, uh, of course, we think about the tannins, but it's mostly about having a, an ar- aromatic sort of profile that you can fall in love with a little bit. That's the dream, and that's my experience with the greatest Pinots I've ever had. So, 
This comes from a little vineyard in Red Hill that we leased for a number of years until the owner got all complicated and difficult. So, um, so it's just a little patch of two acres of uh, Pinot from Red Hill. It's absolutely delicious. And on that note, I'm really glad that you raised before. I remember sitting around a campfire about 10 years ago uh, with this gruff person that I can't remember who they are or why they were there or if I even spoke to them, but they were saying that Merlot and these lighter style of wines were the women's wines because men had the fucking pepper, Shiraz, punch-in-your-face one. And it, was ju- it just struck me that we, we had to go down that path of even you know, the masculine and feminine of wine when it's just, as you said, it's just delicious wine. And now we're getting to a point where people aren't afraid to take the Pinot home with them no matter who they are. And I thank you for that. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> Juicy, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, Matt, we had a question at the front. What, what have I done to the Pinot? What have you done to this Pinot? How did you make it? Um, this is an interesting site, and we do nearly 100% whole bunches with the Pinot. So we do, we just pick it by hand and put it in a fermenter and wait about 10 days and then start stomping on it sort of gradually at first and then more intensely over the next sort of 10 days. Uh, if you can imagine that in that, like in the barrel behind you, that if you put a mass of grapes in there, some of them are going to pop the other ones and there will be a bit of juice trickle down to the bottom and inevitably that juice starts to ferment, so the fermentation creates carbon dioxide. And so within a day or two, the whole mass of grapes is sort of bathed in CO2. And the Burgundians like to say the grapes are still a little bit alive. And so what we know biochemically is that the the chemistry of what the living changes from being in oxygen to in carbon dioxide. So in doing that, they create a whole lot of really interesting aromatic compounds some wines are more bunchy than others and some vineyards are more bunchy than others. So this wine's not quite as strong as some of the other ones I make, which are much more floral and in your face. And I think that's kind of cool because each site has its own sort of personality when you ferment it that way, which is a fairly old-fashioned and quite natural way to ferment it, but I don't really make any claims about that. That's just the way I like to do it. And I think working in a medium to large winery like I do at Chandon, it's really great fun to be every vintage also jumping in on the grapes and up to here in fermenting mush is one of life's great joys. So it's um, part of the process. How do you get that smoky element to it? Smokiness comes from a little bit from the stems and a little bit from fermenting in barrels. So when you press it, you can't get all the sugar out of the grapes because you can't, you can't pop every berry when you're stomping on them. So when you do eventually press it, there's sweetness goes into the barrel and that fermentation continues and that kind of churning, fermenting in the barrel helps draw out some of the toasty smokiness of the barrel. Delicious. Thank you. Ben, 
What have you done to this Nebbiolo? Yeah, this Nebbiolo is quite different. Um, oh, sorry, we have a question at the front. One, one second, one second, one second, one second. <laughs> so, st- so stomping is about breaking up the, the grapes and making more juice that trickles down and keeps that fermentation going. So you're prolonging that carbon dioxide thing and, and also breaking up the grapes so you extract a little bit of tannin and so forth from the skin. Where pressing, you put it, we use big steel presses, but you can see the presses that are around here. It's the same idea where you're physically separating the solid from the liquid so you end up with wine and residual skins and stems and pips. Stomp, stomping is something you do... To begin, or to, or during the fermentation, to encourage tannin and to and to encourage fermentation. Pressing is generally once the wine is finished fermenting, and you're trying to separate the wine from the skins. Wow. Oh, I mean, it. it but this one would be about twenty days, but yeah. it could be anything from ten days to. A whole year, depending it, on... It depends on the variety. Variety, Depends on the style. vintage. Depends on the style of wine. Uh, yeah, I mean, the longer you, you hold off press, generally the drier the wine will be, but the wine's going to finish fermentation either in a tank or in a barrel or whatever vessel you want anyway. So um, generally, like certainly with red wine, they're generally going to be fermented till they're dry. Uh, ben, Nebbiolo? Yeah. Uh, Nebbiolo. What have you done? Well, this is a little bit different. I mean, Nebbiolo's only been in Australia for about 30 years or thereabouts. Um, and I've been fortunate enough, we, we do a, um, an Italian scholarship, Lorenzo Galli scholarship, and, and drink a lot of great Barolo, Barbaresco, and, and comparing to what's going on in, in, in Italy to Australia. Um, so through that, there's a, there was a conversation one year about uh, modern v. traditional wine making with respect to Nebbiolo. So um, with this wine in Piemonte with uh, traditional, they may use, um, in Piemonte they have three red varieties, Nebbiolo, uh, Barbera and Dolcetto. Dolcetto is always They have first. more than that, but those are the three oh, yeah, main sorry. ones. Yeah, pardon me. Um, significant ones. And, um, uh, but Barbera will be the one that's um, picked in the middle and Nebbiolo is always the last. But to get... Nebbiolo is similar with its anthocyanins or colour to Pinot Noir. It's a light skin variety. It's quite hard to get colour into Nebbiolo. So traditionally, some of the um, tradition, traditional uh, winemakers would use the skins of the Barbera after they've pressed the Barbera off and then reuse those skins into the ferment of the Nebbiolo. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have Barbera, but in 2013, uh, we had, I'd pressed off Tempranillo the day before, so I kept a couple of hundred kilos of Tempranillo skins um, and added that to the, to the ferment of the, of the Nebbiolo. Um, we did a very, very long extended maceration uh, for two and a half months in a large uh, 5,000 litre oak barrel uh, for um, uh, maturing the wine to tame the tannins because Nebbiolo is all about tannin. That's, if you don't like tannin, don't drink Nebbiolo. Um, it's all about tannin. So you need to have tannin in Nebbiolo. And I find a lot of Australian Nebbiolo lacks a lot of significant tannin um, and, and fruit concentration um, to match that tannin. Uh, and this was really an interesting experiment in 2013. And, and we found that not only did it enhance the colour, the, the Tempranillo, but also the tannins were there. So um, 
you had this little graph of the tannin structure over the course of the ferment and it sort of started here and it gradually went in waves and it slowly petered um, as it spent a long time on skins. Uh, then it had another um, two years in barrel as well, or, or pungents, I should say, before being bottled. So, um, uh, yeah, it was a very much an experimental wine. Uh, and um, for it's us, a big success. Are you still well. doing it? We are, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Right. It changes every year. It won't necessarily have Tempranillo every year because that wasn't in 13, that was pressed the day before we picked the Neb. So this year, it was a little bit of Shiraz, but we toned it down to a lesser volume of Shiraz skins in the Nebbiolo because Shiraz is more dominant in its flavours um, profile. I don't want to make it too Shirazi, so we've adjusted a bit. But, yeah, certainly still, still experimenting with that and happy where it's going. Nev, what do you think of the Nebbiolo? It's so, can I use the word piquant? <laughs> <laughs> Spicy? Spicy. I haven't uh, looked up the definition it's of got a, It's got a bit of bite. In a very long time. <laughs> do you mean like it's got a bit of bite to it? It's got a lot of bite to it. It's got that real lip pucker, like the... Yeah, so this it. is sort of this yeah. is like a hallmark, particularly of Italian varieties, Italian red varieties. They have this lovely bite to them. Yeah. Um, you know, they potential they kind of do sit on the sour end of the spectrum. Um, what was that again? Again, another reference to the Simpsons when Homer has the the, the most sour thing in the world. And his, and his lips go back into his face, and you can um, see why they're food wines, you know, and why yeah. all the Italians are always. Eating and drinking, and this is a good example. You need food with, with Nebbiolo, and, and those tannins really are akin to food. If you're having Papadelli ragu with that, you'd be pretty happy, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, or yeah. or something. Do, yeah, you, yummy. Do, do you guys have uh, any comments or questions about these two wines? Yes? Okay. Uh, look, comparing Nebbiolo um, from a grape growing perspective, or actually from the bunch, um, it does have um, not a lot of skin colour, not like Shiraz or Cabernet where it's a dark skin variety. It's more Pinot-esque in that re respect, but that's only colour only. Um, but it is one of the most tannic varieties of all the major uh, red varieties in, of the world. Um, so it's a very tannic variety. Uh, it, traditionally, it's a, a variety that's made um, to live in barrel for um, maybe three to four years, and then you'll drink it 10, 20, and even even further along the track because those tannins give great life to the wine and give great longevity to the wine. And obviously, over time, they'll precipitate um, in the bottle and become more fine. And you know, a 40-year-old Barolo will look more Pinot-esque in a way because those tannins do... Uh, drop out of the wine over time, but we all don't have that time to drink, you know, a, a Nebbiolo in, in 30, 20 years time. Um, so um, that's the nature of the beast. It is a tannic variety. Uh, food perspective, uh, again, as we just mentioned, think Italian um, and juicy uh, meats um, with lots of sauce. Um, so uh, osobucos and so forth. Um, but I always think Italian, you know, think wild herbs and, and spices as well. Um, but Italian spice, not Asian spice. Um, so we're not talking hot spices. Um, but the vegetarians in the room, uh, mushroom? Yeah. Mushroom-based dishes? Yep. Pardon me. Yeah, ragus. Truffles. Uh, yeah. Lots of truffles. and truffles. White, white truffles. Yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, black classic truffles. Match. And black truffles on pasta with butter, like simple, you know, like and, and delicious. I spent a fantastic afternoon in a cellar in Borolo um, eating 
cheese and <laughs> drinking Barolo and yeah. that was a very memorable experience. So hard cheese. But can you yeah. guys sort of see with these two wines the potential as far as a sort of lighter but more structured complex style of wine um, but also a great wine where the potential for both of these varieties is for in the context of Australian wine? Yes? Excellent. The, the lovely contrasting styles, obviously, from a tannin perspective, colour perspective. I have a question in the front. A comment? So you you think of it possibly more of as a summer red? Cold temperature affects the way tannins behave in your mouth. So with a wine that's quite soft like that, it can be chilled and it, it works. Yeah. I wouldn't chill the Nebbiolo though. The tannins would be massive. Be brutal. <laughs> Yeah, even more of that piquance, right, uh, Nev? <laughs> Absolutely. So, have we actually answered the, the question that I started off with? Possibly not. <laughs> but hopefully there's been enough conversation, enough we've touched on enough topics there that has had has fueled more conversation. It's possibly not a question we can really answer. I guess that's one of the great things about what's happening in the Australian wine industry now is that there, there are lots of opportunities, whether it is different varieties in different regions, different winemaking techniques. Uh, the, the options are, uh, well, I wouldn't say limitless because that's a bit redundant, but there are lots of different um, avenues to go down. So uh, thank you guys, obviously, for being here tonight. Uh, firstly, I want to thank my special guests who uh, generously donated not only their time but also uh, their, obviously, experience, expertise, and more importantly, some delicious wine. So thank you to Dan Buckle and Ben Rankin for being here tonight. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, obviously, thank you to my co-host for tonight, Nev Spirovska. Um, and obviously, thank you to Matt obviously, uh, for running all the technical side of things. Uh, hopefully, there was a little bit of interaction on the old social media. Um, for those uh, who are on social media, guys, do you want to just quickly share your social media accounts, if you can remember them? And passwords, pin numbers, <laughs> yeah. anything you've got. Um, yeah, no, I've got a couple. Um, I've got two different hats on with uh, Galley Estate. So um, with Twitter, it's Ben underscore Rankin. Uh, and then um, I have the same one for Willamy, but also um, my wife and I have wine underscore Willamy wines. So. And I'm... At, at Dan Buckle on Twitter and... At Dan Buckle Wine. And at Dan Buckle Wine on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Nev? Yes. Social media? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find me and my unsolicited opinions at Nevina Spirovska, if you can spell that. And the same on Facebook and LinkedIn, if you're so inclined. Yes. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Uh, of course, thank you to Noisy Ritual for hosting us tonight. Uh, I do recommend just getting down, having a glass of wine, trying some of the wines that uh, 
amateur winemakers have been have have a had have had a hand in previously, um, and you know have a look into being a part of the project next year or the year after that. But uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed uh, the podcast. We will be sticking around for a bit if you want to ask some questions afterwards. Uh, and hopefully people listening to the uh, the podcast episode, we will be hosting some more, I hope, in the new year. Uh, I've got some more guests lined up and some more interesting topics, I hope. But uh, thank you very much, guys. Uh, obviously, I'm on... I'm on social media at I'm on I'm on social media at Intrepid Wino. Uh, come visit me at intrepidwino.com. Find the podcast, the Vincast. Search in your um, podcast listening app or website of choice. But uh, yeah, until next time, bye. Toodaloo. And once again, many thanks to Ben and Dan for being such fantastic guests on the first edition of the Vincast Live. And of course, thank you to my co-host, Nevin Sparovska and Matt Nielsen, both from the Earbuds Network for all of their amazing help, uh, both in the preparation and on the night. Uh, and obviously, thank you to everyone who is in attendance or who may have joined us on the Facebook live stream. Uh, I really would love to get some feedback. Um, tell us what you did like, what you didn't like, what you might like to see in any future editions of the Vincast live. Um, perhaps suggest uh, a topic uh, that you'd like to hear more about or hear discussed. Um, suggest some uh, some guests that might want to be on the show. But uh, please do get in contact with us. Uh, you can find us at the eBuds website or on intrepidwino.com, my website. Uh, of course, uh, if you enjoy the, the podcast, please do share it wherever you can, um, whether it's on social media or even uh, someone who you know is a wine lover, a wine friend, or someone in the wine industry. Uh, make sure they check out the podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on a number of different uh, um, pl- platforms, uh, including iTunes or the podcasts app. Um, Stitcher, Player FM, uh, Podbean, uh, iHeartRadio. Subscribing means you get the newest episode as, as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and it's also a great way to um, provide further feedback and help the podcast get out to a bigger audience by leaving a rating and a review. Again, I always appreciate feedback, uh, even if it's just to say that you enjoyed the show. Uh, you can follow me on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I am at Intrepid Wino. Uh, come and check out my YouTube channel. Uh, you can find every episode of the podcast there, as well as lots of different tasting videos I've done under the Let's Taste banner. And on my website, intrepidwino.com, you can find my uh, my, my journeys uh, throughout the wine world uh, in my blogging. Um, but guys, until next time, bye. Melbourne's Podcast Network. EarbudsNetwork.com. <laughs>